one of the things that I know that kind of often gets on a lot of people's nerves in the non-monogamy communities is, you know, if someone's having a relationship difficulty, then it's blamed on the non-monogamy versus if you in the monogamous community and you have relationship difficulties, it's very seldom blamed on the monogamy. So I think there's kind of this anxiety around there is this other element that then does disrupt things and create problems. I think it's very easy to label that, that as the problem, which I don't think that's necessarily the case. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, the podcast that covers all those topics you may want to know more about, but might feel a lot of shame in asking. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, speaker, and sexuality researcher. This week's episode is sponsored by My Sexual Health, credible sexual health providers. MySexualHealth.co.za is an online destination where you can find or become a credible sexual health provider. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to learn more about how to become a credible sexual health provider and for a discount to the Sexology Training Club. Today, my guests and I are speaking all about consensual non-monogamy. And I got to have this conversation with Jonathan Bosworth, who is a counseling psychologist based in Johannesburg, who works both in private practice and at the Witz Reproductive Health and HIV Institute Trans Health Center in Johannesburg. He runs and facilitates groups that focus on sexual orientation, non-monogamies, gender-diverse youth, and support spaces for educators working with gender diversity. I've heard Jonathan present on consensual non-monogamy before, and when I heard his presentation, I knew I wanted to get him to share his expertise with you. I understand the concept of consensual non-monogamy, or CNM, as maybe we can abbreviate it too, to make it a little bit easier. But it's quite a it's quite a tricky relationship dynamic for a lot of people to make sense of. And I think it can be quite quite jarring, especially for, say, the older generation who have very much been raised in a society where monogamy is the standard. I don't know if that's your experience of it as well. Sure. I think it really depends on the individual or the person or the community that you're working with. I think for many people, it's something that does feel quite out there and quite challenging. As a therapist that also predominantly works with queer people, actually sometimes it comes as more of the norm. So I think kind of uh, I kind of also sometimes switch depending on which type of clients I'm working with. So sometimes it is this out there thing, is this new thing. It's a bit overwhelming. It needs to be processed um, in, in a broader sense. Um, but I actually find sometimes in queer communities, especially kind of you know, gay men or um, I suppose kind of very sex positive liberal communities, I think there can be this notion where it's most expected if you are sex positive or you are quite liberal. So this is something you just need to do. And this is, there's almost a bit of a pressure to follow through with it. Um, and then almost kind of sometimes almost having to step back and say, this is an option, but it's not something that you have to do. So yeah, I think it really depends on, on the space that you're coming from. So I think it is quite interesting just how, how it can really contrast depending what the person's background is or what the exposure is. And I suppose what the meaning is, is it something that's kind of other and foreign and threatening, or is it something that feels a bit of a norm and a bit of a pressure? Yeah, I think it really can can depend on the person. It's interesting. I'm obviously a a straight woman identifying as a woman. And so in asking you that question, I realized I'm coming at it from a cisgendered heteronormative place of saying, well, you know, if I think about my parents who are a monogamous heterosexual couple, they have, you know, only ever been together that I'm aware of. And that is the standard among their friends and their friends are also cisgendered, you know, heterosexual couples. 
And I'm coming at it from that lens. And as soon as you said, well, it depends on the context and the community and the people that we're, we're speaking to, it made me realize how much of my own cisgendered heterosexual lens I just like zoned in on that question with, which was really interesting. But mm. it's fascinating that you have said that because we, I've often said that the, the heterosexual community has, there's so much we could learn from the queer community around kind of embracing different gender, like gender dynamics, different relationship dynamics, different identity dynamics, all of it, that mm. go against the norm, the heteronormative norm, but that actually speak more to our curiosities, our, our natural ways of being. I don't know. What do you think? Mm. I think it really makes sense. Um, and I think it's a wonderful way actually to start this conversation is um, I think even if you are monogamous, there's a lot that you can learn from non-monogamy. I think kind of there's a lot of things, I suppose, in more normative or traditional identities, there's a lot of things that are just assumed and implicit. But if you have a less typical identity, there is more space to step back and question, um, wonder, does this fit for me? Is this going to work for me? And I think there's a lot of power in that, actually, us choosing to do what we do. And you know, I, think, I think also one of the messages, I suppose, could be, you know, if you are monogamous, um, it's very different from just being monogamous by default versus choosing to be monogamous. So it is, I think ultimately for me, I think one of the biggest things is people finding what fits for them. But I think also having that space to step back and reflect, I think is really useful. But I, I think as a therapist, yeah, I, I love working in this area just because I've learned so much. I think there's a lot about emotional processing, things about how do you work with jealousy? How do you make sense of jealousy? How do you see different relationships? You know, why do we put kind of a hierarchy around our partner versus or partners versus friends or yeah kind of how do we construct relationships and actually a lot of this goes beyond just you know how many partners you have be it sexual or emotional but actually just kind of these norms that we don't often question and I think kind of actually step into into a more diverse space of different relationship practices I think that all of a sudden does give us different options and different ideas of, of ways of being so I think that that's very exciting so I definitely agree with what you're saying actually stepping into different spaces I think we can actually take a lot a lot from from actually just different ways of practicing things and actually how do we disrupt norms because I think norms aren't always useful for most yeah, I think they generally aren't useful for all of us so I suppose you don't have to be transgender to be to have difficulties with gender I think we all have difficulties with gender there's all this kind of expression um, kind of pressure to be the ideal male or the ideal female and I think we all struggle with that but I think if we can disrupt things like gender norms or disrupt things around kind of relationship practices um, I think that does give us more freedom and takes off pressure and allows us to live more authentically and, and really find out what fits for us. It really is a, a, a search and explore and curious space that we should enter into. I know that a lot of my listeners, unlike you and me, aren't so comfortable with these ideas and feel more comfort within the norm, perhaps. Um, and I, I wondered then if we can just explain a little bit about what consensual non-monogamy is to start. Mm -hmm. Before we do that, I, I, I'm reminded of a beautiful quote by Esther Perel, who said that monogamy used to be one person for life, and now it's just one person at a time. And to pick mm -hmm. up on what you said, you know, we, we can't just we tend to just assume monogamy as a default often in particular contexts and, and within particular relationship dynamics. And I know that as a heterosexual woman, that has been assumed, you know, for so many of my relationships, unless it's been a conversation that has 
been had. So let's talk a little bit about what is consensual non-monogamy in the in the broader sense. I don't know if it might mean different things in in different communities. Yeah, sure. I think it help, it starts, it's helpful to start with a broader definition, but then actually think about how many different ways they can they are to be um, consensually non-monogamous. So I suppose in a, in a much broader sense, um, non-monogamy obviously refers to being in um, either emotional or sexual relationships with multiple people. And then the consensual part is that all parties are aware of this and give their consent for this. So everybody knows that there are other parties involved. They've all agreed to have this type of dynamic or this type of setup. It is an open, it's a transparent interaction versus I suppose you could argue something that's non-consensual, non-monogamy would be something like cheating where I suppose there would be typically two people that have agreed to only be with each other kind of sexually or emotionally in a certain sense. And the one person or both people are then seeing other people, but the other, other person doesn't necessarily know about it. That would not be consensual. Um, so that's you know, kind of a, a very, a very broad definition. But then I think it's, you know, it is useful to unpack actually how many different, yeah, and I think there's probably, this is probably quite a, yeah, I think I'm going to touch on a few, but I think there are many different forms of, of consensual non-monogamy. So I think often typically what we think about is polyamory. So this is particularly, there's more to focus on emotional connections. So having multiple partners um, in which you have a strong emotional bond, a strong emotional connection, and there could also be a sexual component to that. So, yeah, I think that's kind of what we often talk about more in general when we talk about consensual non-monogamy than kind of an open relationship. So where there's kind of it's more focused on the sex part. Um, so kind of having sex with multiple people, but not necessarily kind of um, strong emotional connections with multiple people. So often having maybe a monogamous emotional connection, but kind of a non-monogamous sexual kind of having sex with multiple people. Um, and obviously, as with the consent, everybody everybody's aware of that. And then I think some similarly swinging is also there's more of a focus on kind of sexual non-monogamy. So it's often a couple or couples that would have sex with other couples or other individuals that would then, you know, kind of it would purely be about the sex, kind of trying not to develop an emotional connection and still kind of really often the focus is on the couple, kind of maintaining the couple's emotional bond. They can explore sexually with other people, have sex with other people, but there's something about maintaining that emotional bond as, as a couple. And then things like um, more traditional forms of non-monogamy. So I think there's often this tension between these kind of more liberal, kind of more contemporary feminist ways of practicing non-monogamy versus more traditional um, ways of, of practicing non-monogamy. So something like polygamy, um, where you would have a man that would be married or in a relationship with multiple women, um, particularly kind of, yeah, kind of centered in certain cultures, kind of in South Africa, it often is in a Zulu Kosa culture um, or Islamic culture. And these are more traditional practices and kind of often seen as coming from more patriarchal cultures. There can be a tension between the different forms of non-monogamy, but I think it's really important to acknowledge um, yeah, how, varied they are, how varied the practices are. And, and I think, as, as I said earlier on, I think for me, one of the key take-homes for anybody is trying to figure out what fits for you, actually kind of what, what works for you as an individual, be it monogamy or consensual non-monogamy or kind of figuring out what your specific type of um, consensual non-monogamy is. I, th I think that's the, that's the important part. Is there the reverse where one, one wife, many husbands, is that polyandry? Polyandry, that, that's, that's correct, yes. Polyandry, yeah. right, which we just don't hear that much about. I mean, that not, mm -hmm. it's not coming from a, a more traditionalistic patriarchal model. So I'd, I'm actually, you know, wondering, I should be a little bit more curious about polyandry communities and looking into that, what that, you know, what that looks like and what that, that um, the research says about that. 
But mm. it's interesting. You, you, you've given us the quite a clear definition of what consensual non-monogamy is, and then helped me to understand that there are different branches of that. So consensual non-monogamy, CNM, is really for it's a really individual experience for one person and or many people. So two people in a relationship or more. And it really is defined by what two or more people want in their relationship, what they're comfortable with, what they're interested in experiencing rather than just, Oh, we are, you know, non-monogamous and we've chosen to be that, that, that is a broad way of saying we could be, polyamorous we could be swinging we could have an open relationship it's there's a there's a wide variation of the different relationship dynamics that might exist within that now again coming at it from quite a straight lens and I'm, I'm taking myself like a decade or so maybe even further back to before I studied um, human sexuality I've always been quite an open-minded person, but taking myself way back to when I was raised as, you know, this heterosexual cisgendered woman, something that I continue to hear and I, I, I might have thought back then was like, there's no way this can work. Jealousy will get in the way and people are going to get hurt. And how can you be having sex with other people, but going home to your, your partner at night? So how is it that, that these relationships do work? How can we kind of debunk this, this kind of really unhelpful narrative of like, oh, it's impossible, people get jealous and so on? I think that links quite nicely to what you were saying earlier on around what we're familiar with. And is it breaking new ground and figuring out something new, which can come with maybe more freedom, but is also a lot more anxiety provoking because it's, it is trying to figure things out as you go along versus is it easier to stick with what we know and and be guided by that, but maybe have less freedom. It is kind of almost handing over our freedom to the norms and letting the norms decide for us kind of how this should work and what works best for us. So I, I think that's the challenging part for, for many people is this is actually just very far and we don't have representation of it or we don't have an understanding of it. It kind of really defies actually what we've been brought up in. I think there's a lot of messaging around societal, cultural, religious around this is the right way to be and this is how you're going to have a successful relationship. I mean, often that does involve monogamy. It does involve actually you need to be with one person and you need to kind of kind of relate in a very specific way and then things will be safe and secure and okay. Um, where I think kind of for a lot of people, non consensual non-monogamy does disrupt that. There's something about actually are there other ways of creating safety and security or other ways of creating freedom or other ways of relating? And I, I think it's fascinating because I think the more you meet um, consensually non-monogamous people and the more you interact with people, I think you also realize that that can be just as ordinary as monogamy. It doesn't have to be the strange thing or big thing. And I think for many people, it does become quite, quite ordinary. Um, I don't think it needs to be that out there. Um, and I think that's probably what we all want from our relationship practice is something that does feel a little bit more seamless or something that feels relatively manageable, something that feels safe and secure. I think there's a lot of research also comparing people in a non-monogamous relationships versus monogamous relationships. And there is no difference around mental health, um, around experience. So they're not coming from a place of dysfunction or, or disorderliness. And often kind of in general psychology or psychiatric communities, there's this idea that it's something, I don't know, more borderline that you kind of don't have very good kind of strong attachment or strong bonds. And this is why you can be non-monogamous. You know, people that are securely attached can be non-monogamous too. Um, so I think there's obviously kind of, it varies a lot within the community. 
one of the things that I know that kind of often gets on a lot of people's nerves in the non-monogamy communities is, you know, if someone's having a relationship difficulty, then it's blamed on the non-monogamy versus if you in a monogamous community and you have relationship difficulties, it's very seldom blamed on the monogamy. So I think there's kind of this anxiety around there is this other element that then does, does disrupt things and create problems. I think it's very easy to label that, that as the problem, which I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I, I think in general, I think there is, depending particularly what type of non-monogamy you, you're working with, but there is a requirement for a lot of emotional processing and communi- communication. And I think strangely enough, I think any any relationship also really benefits from that. But I suppose if you are having multiple relationships with different people, and kind of making sure that that's consensual, that does require to know, kind of figuring out, does this work? Are we okay with this? What are the feelings that are brought up? Can I manage those feelings? Can I think about those feelings? Can I process them? Can I communicate them? So I think there's a lot of that's required. So I think that maybe is a bit of a challenge, but I think it's also something that's quite enriching that I think a lot of people actually benefit from. So I think it links to what I was saying earlier on about not just doing things by default, but actually I think sometimes it can cause more problems just to assume this is what we do and this is why we do it. Um, and this could be anything. It doesn't have to be about non-monogamy, but anything in a, in a relationship. But actually saying, okay, I'm not sure if this is what you, you're thinking or um, I was assuming this, but actually let's kind of think about it together. Let's understand actually, are we both on the same page? I think that can be a really useful thing. So I think that's kind of something that can be quite beneficial in any any relationship practice. I think jealousy, I think it's yeah, I think that's often something that comes up as kind of, I, I can't do this. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to manage with the jealousy. I think it's quite interesting. And I think there's, and I think this is something I find really enriching around non-monogamy is actually kind of different conceptions of jealousy. I think often in a very broader sense or in a broader discourse, we assume jealousy is um, you and I in a relationship, you did something wrong that made me jealous. That jealousy is your fault and you need to sort it out. And I think there is that dynamic that that plays out. Where I think often, I think particularly in polyamory communities, it is, yes, you did something, but I'm feeling jealous. I need to take responsibility for why am I jealous? And I need to unpack that. And often jealousy is not just jealousy. Jealousy can be a whole lot of different things. It can be you know, anger, it can be insecurity, um, it can be confusion. Um, yeah, I think jealousy is kind of often a blanket experience, but actually there can be a lot of nuanced experience behind that. And I think it's really useful to, to unpack that. Um, so I think this is maybe the, the emotional process and I was talking about just now. I think you know, jealousy is inevitable that people will be jealous. I think sometimes people are surprised in certain situations that the things that they thought would make them jealous actually don't make them jealous. And they are the things that would surprise them. So I think for many people that do practice non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, you know, it is taking this on board, actually saying, um, I'm, I'm willing to actually be open to my feelings. And if there are feelings that are going to come up, I, I need to be able to work with those feelings. So I think there's, there's something about that that I think kind of does does allow these things to be worked with. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's, it's it's difficult because I think often without the practice or without knowing how it works, I think we are often very scared of these things and threatened by these things, actually, where I think people do explore it and figure it out or actually meet people that are practicing these things that orderiness, I think, kind of makes, sure, makes quite a big difference because it's like, oh, okay, I can do it in this way or this is how someone manages it, maybe I could manage it in this way or, or get ideas from, from a person in that sense. So I think, yeah, I think that does make it more possible. Having a bit of a chuckle to myself or maybe you saw me smiling, but, you know, when journalists contact me as a sexologist and say to me, you know, what are the key or secrets to a long-lasting relationship? And they get very bored. Honestly, I think they've stopped coming to me now, which is quite a relief. But um, mm-hmm. they get bored because my standard answer is communicate and take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I'm speaking generally for straight relationships and straight monogamous relationships. You know, just communicate, open up, talk about it, actually say what you feel, but own what you feel as well. So taking responsibility. And I did a, a lovely episode on couples therapy a long time ago. I think it was in season two, perhaps, or season one with Stephen Laverick, who's uh, one of our, our team members. And we were speaking about people's expectations when they come to couples therapy, that they're coming so that the therapist can fix their partner and often get shocked when it's about, no, no, you, you are here to focus on yourself in the same time that your partner's focusing on themselves and you're kind of bringing them together. Mm. So it's very interesting what you said, that, that, that almost like the central tenets to managing a successful experience or a successful consensually non-monogamous relationship really are some of the central tenets to happy, healthy relationships, whether it's familial, romantic uh, friendships and so on, which is open, honest communication and ownership of our feelings. Mm. And particularly when you were speaking about jealousy, you know, I was smiling, um, one, because I'm a therapist and I know that you didn't make me jealous, but I made myself jealous mm. because of my own stuff. And mm. again, speaking as a straight woman, there's so much, I think, as somebody who's in a monogamous relationship, I could learn from somebody in a non-monogamous relationship where emotions like jealousy are managed very differently. Whereas mm. I think the norm around jealousy is you've done something, thus I'm feeling this way. So the mm. ownership is, of that feeling is, is, um, is transferred onto somebody else. It's something that's, that's often a problem for people who don't quite understand it. And yet I would imagine, I can't speak from experience here, but I would imagine that for two three more people in a consensually non-monogamous type of relationship, whatever that looks like, there is a lot of consistent conversation that takes place. There's the need to set expectations and boundaries of what is okay and what's not okay, of what we are wanting to do, what we're not wanting to do. But that doesn't mean that those emotions aren't felt. And that doesn't mean that sometimes one of the partners in that dynamic may experience a change in how they feel about something. Sure. I think, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's, and I think this is, I think, as you said, it's, it's something that could be beneficial in a non-monogamous setup, but actually could benefit all of us. I really like how you, you're thinking about that, that actually this, this is what, we, what makes all of us secure, what kind of really helps all of us feel understood, feel seen, feel secure. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to be, because I, I think the, I think the strange thing is I think often, I think one of the assumptions of monogamy, monogamy or monogamativity um, is that um, because my partner's not having sex or emotion, strong emotional connections with other people, that makes us secure, which I think might help and it might benefit some people. But actually, I think a lot of the time it's actually more about communication. It's more about being seen. Um, it's more about, as you said, kind of boundaries and understanding boundaries, um, being thoughtful. So I think actually a lot of those things are the things that actually make us secure, not necessarily just the kind of you know, how many other people we're interacting with on a kind of a sexual or romantic level. And I think that's, I think something I found quite interesting about non-monogamy is actually that starts disrupting that. So it's not just, okay, my partner is sleeping with other people, I'm having strong emotional connections with other people, but that's actually not what makes me secure or insecure, but it's actually how we, how we work with it and how we navigate it together. And I think there's actually something about that that I think for many people can build quite a strong bond actually is 
actually going through the process of communicating, of figuring it out, of building something. So we're not just doing something by default and it's assumed that it just happens, but it's actually something we've created together. And I think that can can actually be a strong, create a strong sense of security, a really strong bond for many people or bonds. So would you get a couple, perhaps a, let's say a heterosexual couple coming to see you saying, we need to know how to navigate this because he or she wants to explore this and I am not comfortable with it. Is that the is that kind of the clientele you might get in your practice? I think that is a common way that yeah, non monogamy could actually present. Okay, so so what what would you do there? Like, how would you help that couple navigate it? What kind of conversations are you instigating between them, or or, or expectations are you trying to get them to set for themselves? I think for me, it's really useful to figure out what does this mean for each of the people. So I think the fact that they're able to have that conversation and ask for help with that conversation, I think is really important because that's a lot of the groundwork is already happening. But I think for many couples that would present in this way, a colleague jokes about the type of dynamic you're talking about as a monopoly. So a mono, <laughs> yeah. mono party situation. Where, I love that. <laughs> um, one of the partners might identify as monogamous. One of the partners may previously identified as monogamous, but there's kind of maybe an exploration around a poly or a non-monogamous identity. Generally, what I think happens is what does this mean for each of the partners? And I suppose some of the common things is, you know, the, the person that might be on the poly side or the non-monogamy side is has discovered something about themselves and wants to explore, but is obviously worried about, often is worried about hurting the other person, what this means, but also maybe is worried about their freedom or being constrained or they've discovered this new part of themselves, but is worried about, can I express this? And am I going to be limited in it? And, you know, is it possible for me to, to be able to, to explore this? Versus the person that may be on the monogamous side is uh, can be quite a surprise. I think often one of the assumptions of monogamy is we get into a relationship and we don't change. We don't, identities don't develop. We don't explore. We don't figure out things about ourselves. We get into the relationship and things just stay the same, which I know, I think not only just thinking about monogamy or non-monogamy, but I think for most things, you know, we do evolve quite a lot as people. But there is this kind of the surprise and then I think there's often an anxiety or question, what does this mean? Does this mean I'm not good enough? Um, does this mean my partner wants to leave me? Does this mean our relationship might not be able to work? So I think it is really trying to figure out what, what, are, those, what, are, what, are, what are each individual's anxieties? And I think if we can understand those and get each kind of person in the dynamic to, to make sense of them and not just kind of often, I think, I think when we're in crisis, um, and I think particularly in a kind of relationship counseling type of setting, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in what I want and not listening to the other person and whatever the other person says, this is too threatening to me or too overwhelming. But I think if we can slow down and get to a point where I can hear what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the other person or other people in this dynamic? I, th- I think that does have a lot for, for more navigating because I think it is ultimately, you know, kind of creating communication, but also creating security actually. Can we still be together and can we be secure? And is there a way of, if you understand this and I understand, if you understand me and I understand you, is there a way of actually us navigating this together and can we find security together? I think that I think that would probably be a direction to go into, but I think really needing to understand what does this hit on for me? Because I think there's a lot of stuff that we do project onto relationships, but I think particularly what, what we project onto yeah, different non-monogamous practices. You you made a very valid point there at the start, which is sure, if a couple has actually sought out professional support to navigate this, they've done a, they've done themselves a big favor already. I think that that's obviously not the norm for so many couples who decide that they want to start exploring this or one partner, Monopoly, I think that's very clever, um, one partner who who expresses an interest in this. If, 
it can lead to immense conflict, deep hurt. As you said, that kind of personalization of, well, what's what's wrong with me? Am I not good enough? Am I not enough for you? The the thoughts around that. And as we know, it's it's actually not about that. It's got nothing to do with that personalization and, and perhaps about the partner. I'm obviously generalizing here. Sometimes it very much is about the partner. But it's really about another or well, the other partner's curiosity and desire to navigate through experiences that bring about a sense of intrigue and interest in them. But yeah, I, I, I'm wondering from the people that you've worked with who are in these types of relationships, what it is you think those couples, those throuples, those multiple partners would be able to share with somebody who felt really fearful of what this meant for their relationship or was really challenged by this notion of their partner wanting to open up the relationship or bring somebody else into the relationship? Are there any thoughts you have from your experience with people who practice these relationships and, and, and are involved in these relationship dynamics that are like little nuggets for others to learn from? Sure. I think something that really comes to mind quite strongly is, and it's probably a bit of a mouthful, but maybe internalized monogonormativity. So the norms. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Um, Internalized <laughs> monogonormativity. What is that? Mean? So I think monogonormativity being the, this is the default or the, the natural or the supposedly normal way of being. And this is kind of, if you want to have a relationship, this is the legitimate way of having a relationship than any other form of non-monogamous relationship is less legitimate or is going to be, is likely to be less successful. I think those type of beliefs or ideas. So I think we do predominantly live in a very monogonormative society. So I think a lot of what we do internalize kind of actually then does lead to kind of what the beliefs we have around relationships and what makes a relationship work and what is threatening and what is not threatening. I think someone that is processing this, if they are in a monogamous relationship and their partner's non-monogamous, or if they're considering non-monogamy and kind of finding their way in that, I think he's ready to figure out actually what what are my personal beliefs and what's important for me versus what has society told me I need to believe and I need to think and I need to to do. And I think that's I think that's a really important part of the process. And, um, and I think it goes back to what we're saying just now, not just doing things by default, but actually really figuring out what fits. And I think it's really difficult when a lot of the beliefs around monogamy are so ingrained. This is this is the only way to be secure or I can't experience things like jealousy. Jealousy are bad experiences. I need to pull away from them rather than process them. You know, these, these type of um, beliefs or discourses are, are kind of so natural and um, so ingrained that sometimes we, we confuse those with what, what we actually want or what actually works for us. And, and I think kind of they're needing to take time to figure that out. And, you know, what is, what, are, what is the messaging that I've received from society? What is the messaging I've received from my community or my parents? And kind of actually, are these things that really fit for me? And I think really needing to challenge those. And I think that can be quite difficult, but also quite freeing, actually, just that this is not just, I'm not just doing this because I, my parents did it, but I'm actually doing this because I've chosen to do it. I think there's something about that. And I think that makes quite a big difference because I think even someone that's been in a, non, a consensual non-monogamous setup for a long time, it's still very easy to catch themselves with like, oh, wow, I was, I was thinking about this in a very monogamous way that actually I was making this assumption and I need to behave in this way or my relationship security is based on something that actually might not be true. So I think that's quite an important part of the process in that really challenging where, where do these beliefs come from and, 
actually what what fits for me as an individual and is it something that's been prescribed or actually is it something that I found that fits and kind of what are what are my norms and what is important for me interesting I was having a conversation with somebody I think it was yesterday about what they were taught about sex growing up where they were taught about it um, from religious teachings and from parents and from uh, school, you know, all the different sources that we usually get are informal slash formal, maybe not so helpful sex education from. And what this person was saying to me is now in their mid forties, they're, they're starting to realize that actually what they were taught, the way it was taught, why it was taught makes no sense to them being an actual adult experiencing actual sexual encounters it makes no mm-hmm. sense to them because there's no alignment and mm-hmm. there is no instruction book of you know in the bible what do we do when we get divorced the bible says no sex before marriage and our parents told us that sex was dangerous or the school said mm-hmm. you know sex is about stis and you know you've got to be careful you've got to wear a condom but no one ever spoke about pleasure and there are all of these different misalignments that take place in the way mm. we are I, I know it's a strong word but indoctrinated around sex mm. unfortunately it, it is a strong word but I feel like it's relevant mm. that once we become fully fledged adults with our own minds who can make our own decisions and can seek out our own information particularly in an age now where information is at our fingertips 24 7 whenever we want it I'm not surprised I'm getting so many of my clients experiencing anger at the fact that they were forced into this mold from a very early age and they've moved through that mold and they've started to break free of it to go, hang on a second, hang on, hang on, I'm very confused. This doesn't align with what I feel, but I'm struggling to bring what I was taught and what I I think I know together with what I'm experiencing. Have you got any advice for people on how to navigate that discomfort, that frustration they may feel about, I'm I'm curious of of exploring X, but I've only ever been told Y. How do I I go about this? Mm. I think versus selling, that's a lovely way to put it. I think it's relatable for all of us. I think we all have to Mm. process sexuality. I think the message in general you get about sex is very constrictive and restrictive and fear-based rather than, as you said, kind of moving towards pleasure or things that would be generative or creative. I think that's, that's a really nice example of putting it like that because I think, uh, I think you could probably see non-monogamy as an extension of that. I think for me it is really about finding spaces to process that. And I think sometimes it can be internal, but I think often we do wonderful processing with other people. So um, obviously it depends what the person's comfortable to know if it is kind of something that feels still kind of quite fresh and raw, then possibly, you know, kind of a therapy or counseling space where it is kind of doing it with a professional and you've got you know, professional boundaries and, and you can figure this out. I think it is also useful to find a therapist that is experienced in the area. I think, unfortunately, I think often the profession isn't great in this area. I think there are still a lot of monogonormative ideas that still get perpetuated within kind of psychotherapy and psychology. And yeah, so I think it's important to find someone who has that experience in the area, but kind of a space to actually be able to process this, actually trying to figure out what does it mean, what's brought this up, where could it go, what could it look like, um, how could you navigate this? But I think there's also wonderful peer peer spaces, and I think this the wonderful idea of you know, being connected and being online is accessing forums, accessing communities. Often they are kind of poly social spaces or swinging spaces, 
And, and I think kind of being able to find the right people that you feel safe with that might be able to bounce ideas, might be able to have these difficult conversations, sit in the messiness, sit in the confusion, provide kind of different ideas of, of ways of being. I, I think to me that's really useful because I think that's how we that's how we figure these things out. And I think taking time and space to process is, is really key. And I think going back to your question earlier on about you know, how could a couple that's been assumed to be monogamous previously and kind of maybe one or both parties are exploring non-monogamy is it does take time. And I think particularly if a person has been monogamous and uh, is considering non-monogamy, they've maybe had more time to figure that out. It might, might still be fresh, but they've probably had some a lot of time before they've before they bring this up with their partner. They've had a lot of time to think about it. Where I think for the partner, if it's the first time they're hearing about this and something they haven't expected, that's going to be quite raw and fresh for them, and it is going to take some time. So I think I think also allowing each person in the process to to kind of have enough time to um, to process these things and figure out what is the meaning, why why does this push my buttons, why do I feel uncomfortable with it, and and yeah, and really it's really to be able to figure that out. Are there any particular resources that you think are really great for people to access um, who want to learn more and explore more about the topic? I think they are to go to Bibles. Um, I think that's where people talk about them. I think there's a book called the there's a, yeah, there's a book called the Ethical Slut, um, and then there's another book called More Than Two. Um, the Ethical Slut is a little bit more queer friendly, and I think More Than Two kind of does um, flesh out things in a little bit more complex way sometimes. Um, I think they are really good books for polyamory, so I think they also kind of speak more to that. I think they do touch on things like swinging and open relationships. There's kind of more bit of a leaning towards polyamory. But I think they really give you a lot of quite thorough ideas of what what are the dynamics involved? Why do we think certain ways? Kind of what is the normativity? How do we disrupt that? But also practically, how do we do this? How do we communicate? How do we do the emotional processing around it? So I found those those books particularly useful. There are other books that kind of then hit on specific things. There's a book, I think it's called Polysecure, which thinks about how do we use you know, attachment theory to create safe relationships, but in a, in a non-monogamous sense. Um, so that's really useful. The book slipping my, my mind now, but there's another book that talks about polyamory or non-monogamy in race, which I think is really useful because I think often there's a bit of a whitewashing around, particularly around polyamory and the practices and um, you know, this kind of normal expectation around being a certain person and this option being only available for certain people. But actually what happens if you might not fit that norm or that prescription and, and how do you navigate this particularly yeah, with intersectionality, kind of this can be quite fraught and a lot more complicated as a person of color or coming from a certain community or background, religion, or I think as you've been mentioning, sexual orientation, gender identity. So I think it's also useful to think about your know, kind of ways of you know, of thinking about intersectionality and how complicated these experiences can be, also depending where you're coming from and what, what your different identities are. Uh, I think from an academic point of view, there's a um, there is a consensual non-monogamies reader that's quite thorough it's kind of quite a nice overview talking about things from a very theoretical kind of critical perspective but then talking about a practice from how do you work with families and children and in school settings and in couples counseling or in relationship counseling rather to kind of break the, the monogamity and assume that there's only two people in a relationship um, so I think that's that's also quite a useful resource I think for me also something that's really become quite pertinent I think sitting with a lot of the more critical literature is the danger of normativities even in um, less supposedly less normative spaces. So I've been talking about monogonormativity, and I think that's obviously a challenge and something we all need to undo. But there's something I think particularly in the polyamorous movement that does become challenging is that kind of it does become a new way of 
there's one way to be polyamorous. There's a hierarchy of this is the best way to be polyamorous and this is how you need to, to be in a certain sense. And I think you almost start then getting a polynormativity where there's a construction and a hierarchy around this is the best way to be and, and to do things, which I think can also then start limiting freedom. I think a lot of people explore non-monogamy because of that. It, might just, it might just be something that's inherently for them, but also kind of to find more freedom. But I think um, often there is a lot of, you know, of any movement there kind of does become prescriptions. And I think we also just need to be challenging of that, actually still really thinking about, okay, this is what is recommended, but does this really fit for me? And am I being policed by the community or am I really figuring out what, what really works for me? I think that's quite important. And I think the difficulty, I think, with any supposedly non-normative or non-traditional identity is this kind of this quest for legitimacy. And I think sometimes they can often be, I think particularly around, um, once again, around polyamory, there is this kind of idea of trying to make it normative or to normalize it rather, and to make it um, seen as, be seen as legitimate. And I think in that sometimes the representation of that of the practice actually becomes more important than the actual practice. How do we how how are we seen as legitimate? And we need to represent ourselves in very specific ways and in very palatable ways or ways that would be accepted by broader society or monogamous communities. Um, and I think that can also sometimes become quite a big challenge around actually is this for is this in the best interest of people and relationships or is this in the best interest of representation and politics? So I think kind of I think with any form of literature, and I think a lot of the resources I've mentioned now that do touch on it, yeah, kind of actually, I think that's quite important to, to have that lens is ultimately this is trying to figure out what, what works for you at the end of the day. And, and knowing that there's a lot of politics and power dynamics around trying to legitimize or trying to figure out an identity in a society where we still do ascribe legitimate, more, more legitimacy to certain identities and kind of there's this kind of fight for, for legitimacy. So I think that's just quite important to also keep in mind in, in, in kind of reading and exploring these areas. Yeah, I think something that's just become so apparent to me throughout our conversation and from the, the very first question I asked you and reflecting on that question is how I'm myself, despite being a sexologist and despite having kind of a length and breadth of knowledge around these topics, I still base my questions to you from a heteronormative lens. And mm. What I found fascinating today is how much I have learned despite being somebody in a position, quote unquote, of authority on a topic, sex, sexuality. And I've still learned a lot. And it's just mm. stood out in what you, you, you've kind of said in, in this last bit of the podcast that, that we do privilege particular dynamics. We privilege particular people. We privilege particular voices. And Obviously, we've got a very, very, very long way to go. And I recognize even I've got a long way to go in how it is that I view particular relationships just from the way I, I, I'm curious about them. But I think that we have come a long way, which is great. But as you and I will both, I'm sure, share in, 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 think, in thinking, it's not far enough. We've still got mm -hmm. a very, very long way to go. Is there anything else that, that we haven't touched on that you think is super important for us to delve into? Um, I think I could speak about this for hours. So I think it would be tempted just to delve into a whole lot of other things. Um, I think I'm sorry, still sitting with what, what you were mentioning. Uh, and I think for me, a really useful framework is continuously querying things. So I think kind of, and this is more a, I suppose, the more theoretical queer theory type of querying rather than, and it's queer as a verb rather than as a noun. I think often we talk about as queer as, you know, kind of a specific group of people where I think I'm talking about querying as 
I think the ongoing importance of disrupting kind of what we see as normal and kind of what what we what we privilege and what we legitimize. Um, so I, I think to me that's quite important in thinking about this. This is not an endpoint that we get to. That I suppose the very kind of theoretical idea of being queer is something that's never can never be achieved. It's always moving towards a queerness, but queerness is actually never arrived at. And I, I think kind of thinking about sex, thinking about relationships, thinking about those relationship practices, I think it is an ongoing thing around actually what works for me, what has been imposed on me, and what are the politics around this. And I think if we can label that, and I, I really like the way that you've been talking about it, um, you know, we all have a lot to learn. I'm, I think I'm in the same place. I think just personally and professionally with ethical non-monogamies, I think I have a fair amount of experience, but actually this is an ongoing process, this is an ongoing figuring out and understanding. And, and I think kind of, constantly challenging things and questioning things, I think really does actually open up more space to connect, more space to be, um, I think it opens up a lot of possibility kind of for, for yeah, kind of psychological well-being and, and healthiness. Um, and I think it's a difficult thing to occupy. And I think that's why we maybe find this area quite difficult is because it, the things that feel safe and normal actually might not necessarily be safe and normal. And I think we kind of need to challenge those. And I think that's a bit scary. And I think that's what makes it a bit threatening, but actually it does create a, way of thinking. So I think for me, kind of a key thing, and I think this is if you're monogamous or non-monogamous, is also knowing that you can grow and, and develop. I think there is this assumption that we we are static as individuals or we are static in our relationships, but actually we continuously changing and growing and developing, and that's also okay. And I think it's also very exciting. So I think kind of, I think that's also quite a helpful lens to look at it is that it would be nice if we're um, static in some ways because it would be safe and predictable, but actually that's not the nature of human sexuality of relationships of identity but we are continuously involving and i think it's also okay to to kind of allow for that um but it's also you know doing that work then actually kind of continue to process things to understand what's coming up navigating that with our partners making sense of it so i think that to me is quite quite a useful thing to think about is actually how do we continue to do this how do we continue to reflect on ourselves how do we continue to reflect on our relationships um i think that that makes a big difference so i think it's something I think we could talk about different forms of non-monogamy in many different ways, but I think I think one of the things I've definitely learned and taken away from this personally and professionally is is actually there's this ongoing process in it. I think that 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 can be really useful and really powerful, and I think kind of trying to be open to that, naming our normativities, naming where we come from, um, but then also being open to learning and open to things being disrupted, and then ultimately figuring out what what fits for us. I think it's such a powerful place for us to end this conversation on. And I'm so grateful that you were sharing your wisdoms with me today. So thank you so much for doing that. Okay, Shanaz, it's been really wonderful. Are you curious about sexuality and want to learn more? Well, you can learn much more from me on several platforms. On my website, you can find short online courses to expand your knowledge, either as a member of the public or as a healthcare provider. And if you want a comprehensive sex education that you really should have had but likely never got, then check out my three-hour class on mymastery.tv where you can buy my single class for as little as 145 Rand or $13. The My Sexual Health Sexology Starter Pack includes 20, yes, 20 value-packed sexual health courses that will transform the way you support your patient's sexual health needs. Courses include things like diagnosing and treating sexual pain by the wonderful Dr. Elna Rudolph, who's the president of the World Association of Sexual Health, and courses in ethics in sexual health practice, and even courses I've developed, such as sex therapy for treating desired differences and sensate focus, and so much more. 
the bundle actually has a combined value of over $3,900. And you can gain access to all of it for only $890. If you type in asking for a friend, that's one word, you will get 10% discount on this incredible bundle. Head to sexologycourses.com to take up this amazing offer. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you could rate and review this podcast so that you can continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics and get the information about sex you should always have had. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform.